Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to come together. We ask you to guide and lead us as you would show us what you want us to learn from this section of scriptures. And we just ask your spirit to guide and anoint. In Jesus' name, amen. Jeremiah chapter 12, we're going to be starting at verse 5. Uh, Jeremiah started this, this chapter by complaining to God. He goes, God, you know, let me just talk with you. I, I know I trust you, but... And I think this is good because sometimes we do the same thing. We'll tell God, God, I fully trust you, but I don't understand what's going on. And this is what Jeremiah has said. And now we're going to read God's response back to him in verse 5. If you have run with footmen and they have wearied you, how then can you contend with horses? And if in the land of peace wherein you trust you are weary, they weary you, how then will you do it in the swelling of Jordan? For even your brothers, the house of your father, even they have dwelt dealt treacherously with you. Yea, they have called a multitude after you. Believe them not, though they speak fair words unto you. I have forsaken my house. I have left my heritage. I have given my, the dearly beloved of my soul into the hand of her enemies. My heritage is unto me a lion in the forest. It cries out against me. Therefore, I have hated it. My heritage is against me as a speckled bird. The birds around about are against her. Come you, assemble all the beasts of the field, come to devour. Many pastors have destroyed my vineyards. They have trodden my portion underfoot. They have made my pleasant portion a desolate wilderness. They have made it desolate, they, and being desolate, it mourns unto me. The whole land is made desolate because no man lays it to heart. The spoilers are come to the high places through the wilderness, for the sword of the Lord shall devour from the one end of the land even to the other end of the land. No flesh shall have peace. They have sown wheat, but reaped thorns. They have put themselves to pain, but shall not pro profit. They shall be ashamed of your revenues, because, and, and they shall be ashamed of your revenues because of the fierce anger of the Lord. So here is God's response back to Jeremiah. Jeremiah is complaining, God, a lot of bad things have been happening, and God turns around and says, hey, if you can't handle um, going with the footmen, how can you handle going with the, with the, the cavalry, the, the horses? And I think this is kind of interesting. How many times do we complain to God? And I can almost picture God saying, well, you're having trouble with the foot soldiers, and you're wanting me to put you into the big battle. And I've gone this way at times in my life where, God, I just want to go into something really big and Every once in a while, God has let me do it and, and beat me up real good and say, just be content with what you have. And we always seem to want more than we have. And I've seen this even with other, other Christians. You know, God, if I could just have a big Bible study, a, a, a better prayer life, a pastor going, I want a bigger church, I want this, that, or the other thing. And I can hear God saying, you can't even handle it with the infantry, and now you want to go with the Calvary. And you know, we need to be very careful about this whole idea of what do we want? Are we satisfied? Are we content with whatever God gives us? And this is what Paul has said. I've learned to be content with whatsoever God has given me, with much or with little. And oftentimes we have a great spirit of discontent. And you know, this is something that our world goes through. Everything about our world today, especially the lost world, is all about me. Whatever makes me feel good. You know, I, 
They, people don't want to have a family because kids get in the way. They don't want to even get married because the, the spouse will get in the way. They don't want to be committed to a job long term because the job gets in the way of being able to do their, whatever they want to do. And you know, this is something we need to be very careful about. You know, what is it that God has put in our hand to do? And do it well. And if we're faithful with the little things he gives us, God will give us the opportunity to do bigger things. But we have to prove that we are faithful. Faithful amongst the foot, footmen before he's going to say, okay, now go, go contend with the, cow, the, the, the horses. He says, you know, you have not even, you have been wearied in Jerusalem. How much more can you do it, you know, in this one he says, in the swelling of the Jordan. Right? You can't even handle it in the enclosed city where it's safe. How are you going to handle the flood, the flooding around you, the, what's going on around, around about? And you know, sometimes I think it's wonderful that God has said no to me on many of the things that I've wanted to do. Because <laughs> later on I get back far enough and I'm going, oh, yeah, it would have been pretty rough to do what I wanted to do. And this is something that is so important, learning to just trust God and know that he has a plan that is perfect for us because we tend to get a little bit of pride in ourselves and say well God I think I can do bigger things and sometimes it's really hard for people like myself who are managers and controllers God I can handle I can handle bigger things and I'm probably glad that God does not put me in charge of bigger things if nothing else my pride would get in the way and I'm going, God, look at, all of, look at all that I have accomplished. You know, you put this in my hands and look what has been accomplished. And I would be taking pride. And this is something just as bad as being able to not do it. You know, to think that you managed to do something. And this happens to a lot of pastors. They, they minister, they minister, their church grows big. And all of a sudden they're going, wow, look at the church that I have built. And I can almost hear God saying, this is not your church. This is my church. I built this church. And they, we end up getting this prideful attitude. Look what I have accomplished. And that can be as bad as totally falling apart. And then he goes, he reminds them, it says, verse 6, For even your brothers, the house of your fathers, have dwelt, dealt treacherously with you. They have called a multitude against you. Believe them not, though they speak fair words. And this goes back to uh, the end of the last chapter, where it says that, the rem that God was going to destroy the, the men of Anathoth, which was his hometown, because they were planning to kill him. And he's going, you know, you think you're such a great, you know, great person, you know, your own family wanted to kill you. Yeah. And this is kind of an interesting statement. He's going, you know, God has already promised him that he was going to be on his side. He was going to make him like Flint. He was going to keep him, keep him strong like iron against the adversaries. And we can see that he's starting to get this feeling of, look what I'm doing, instead of look what God has done for me. And it doesn't come out clearly to say it, but you know, it's very clearly saying that, you know, just look at your own family wanted to kill you, and I'm protecting you. And how often do we have friends and family turn against us when we're following God? You know, it is very easy for it to happen. You turn to God and everybody in your family sometimes turns against you because you are all of a sudden different. You're not part of the world. And so here he, here he goes, don't, and he says, when they speak fair words, don't believe them. Have you ever had people trying to flatter you 
to get you to make some decision for them. Now, we're in the middle of the election series, and you, know, you hear all these people saying all these things that, that they know that the people they're trying to win want them to say. And then you get somebody else saying that those guys are lying, and I'm getting, I'm, my head is spinning half the time because I'm trying to figure out who is telling the truth, who's not telling the truth, and realizing that I'm going to have to spend a lot of time listening to these guys' past speeches and their writings and try to figure out who is telling, you know, at least three quarters of the truth and who is, who is lying, you know, lying through their, through their teeth. And this is what he said, you know, when, you're, when your own family, your own, your own city men are saying good things about you, don't believe them. And, you know, we need to be very careful when we're listening to people because the world is good at lying and making things sound so good. This is why I love Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not into your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your path. We need to be ready to not listen to what the world says and say, God, what is it that you want? Guide me. Teach me. There have been so many times, especially since I've become a pastor, where somebody has tried to say something to me about the church or for the church or want to speak to the church, and God has just spoken very softly, ignore them. Ignore what they're talking about. And then I find out that they were just trying to get in and tear the church apart. I had one guy, he wanted to give a message to the church, and it sounded so good, but then when I told him no, he, he was tearing everybody apart, and, and it's like, ah, oh, no, we're not... We're not going there. That's why God said no, because that's probably what he really wanted to say in the church, not the other stuff that he said he wanted to say. And God will show us, if we listen to his voice, what is going on, and be able to look, and be able to look past the fair words, the, the good spoken words. This is the one thing I've been learning out of the prison. We have to be so careful because inmates are good at manipulation. And as I said, inmates have all day long, you know, seven days a week to think about what to say and how to say it and play different scenarios to try to trip somebody up. And, you know, this is something that the world does over and over again. They tell us what we want to hear and then do what they want to do after we've began to trust them. And here Jeremiah said, don't trust them. Don't listen to those fair words. And it says, I have forsaken my house. I have left my heritage. I have given the dearly beloved of my soul into the hand of, the, of her enemies. I love this example. He says, I have forsaken my house. Okay, his people, Israel. He goes, I have left my heritage. You know, Heritage is deeper than house. I mean, house is one thing. This is just family, the ones that he loves. He, but his heritage, the ones he wanted to give life to. But then I love that last statement that he says, I have given my dearly beloved of my soul. That's a deep love that, Jesus, that God had for his people. The dearly beloved of my soul. This isn't just, well, I pick these guys up and I don't really care about what happens to them. This is, I care deeply. They're my house, they're my heritage, and by the way, I dearly love them. And that's a deep affection when he goes that far into it. That God says his people were dearly 
beloved. And, you know, I sometimes wonder, do we think of ourselves that way before God? He has made us his children, his family. We are his dearly beloved. He cares for us. And how many times do we not see ourselves that way, which is bad enough, but how often do we not see others in the body of Christ that way? And how often do we mistreat the, the people in the church that God dearly beloves and we don't treat them with the respect that God has for them? And I think if this is something that has really been hitting home a lot to me, do we as a church love each other the way God loves the members of his church? And if we did, what would change about the way we, we, we treat each other? And I think this is very important. Are we looking at somebody and says, that person over there is dearly beloved of God? You know, if we really treated them the way that God sees them, what would change? What would change in the way that we deal with each other? How would it, how would it deal, you know, how would people change in the way they deal with us? You know, all of this is very important for us. And it says, I have turned into the hand of her enemies. My heritage is unto me as a lion in the fortress. It cries against me. Therefore, I have hated it. You know, he says, the one that I love is acting like a ravenous lion, roaring, growling, seeking whom it can devour and, and attack. And the one that is choosing to attack is God himself by worshiping idols, by turning away from him. And this is something that kind of scares me when I look at it. How often do we turn our back on God and basically act that same way? God, I just don't care for what, you're, what you have planned for me. You know, and we probably would never say it out loud and Israel would never say it out loud. I don't care about God. But during this period, they're building altars in Jerusalem. They're putting, they're putting idols in the temple. They're worshiping other gods. Turning their back on God and saying, we don't care about you. And God is standing there saying, you're my beloved. I love you so much that I called you out of all the other nations. I have made you my people. I have called you. I have blessed you. And you are mine. And I think even to this day, God is saying the same thing to Israel. You are mine. I have called you. I've restored you now for the third time as a nation. And you're still not following after me. You're still rejecting me. You're still not worshiping me. And the sad thing is, how many Christians do the same thing? You know, yes, I'm a Christian. No, I'm not giving God my whole heart. I'm not going to give him everything, you know, give him everything that he wants. I'm just, he saved me. That's all that matters. And sometimes I wonder if that's enough to get you saved or not. But that's another story altogether. Because God wants all of us. He wants to be Lord of our life. And that's what it says in, in Romans 10 is that we are to call him Lord. And that isn't just say, God, come in to save me. I want my fire insurance. I don't want to go to hell. I'm getting my fire insurance, so I'm turning my life over to you. He says, I want to be Lord. And it says, whosoever shall call him Lord. And that means mean it. You know, we turn our life over to him and say, God, you are in charge of this life. I am 
you know, no longer trying to take control. And many of us, and you know, I've mentioned it before in the 60s and 70s, there was a bumper sticker that said, God is my co-pilot. What a dumb statement. God is not our co-pilot. He better be the pilot. He better be sitting on the throne of our life as Lord, not, okay, God, you can sit up here next to me in the seat next to me, but I make all the decisions. It's not what he wants. He wants us not even sitting next to him practically, but down in front serving him and saying, God, what is it you want me to do? And God wants to come into our life and make it a brand new creation. He wants to sweep it clean. He wants to get rid of all the garbage we have in our life. And so many times we come to him and say, all right, God, well, I'll give you the throne, but you can't have any of the rooms of my heart. I'll give you the throne, but I'm not giving you any control of my life. You're sitting on the throne. You're the figurehead. Kind of like the way uh, monarchs are in today's world. They're just figureheads while other people run it. And the world is treating God that way for the most part. God, you can have that throne. You can, you can, make, you can, you can make all the decrees you want. You can, you can say what you want. But I make all the decisions because I'm parliament. I'm the one that gets to make all the decisions. And that is not truly turning our life over to him. And here we see this whole process. He says, they're like a lion toward me. They roar at me. They, they are against me. It says, my heritage is unto me as a speckled bird. The birds around are against her. Come you, assemble all the beasts of the field. Come to devour. I tried to do a lot of research on this whole idea of a speckled bird. <laughs> and I couldn't find anybody that really said anything that made any sense about a speckled bird. Uh, but it is, the bird here is a bird of prey. All right, so this is a bird of prey. He goes, you are like a bird of prey. And God is calling the birds, around, you know, the enemies around him to come and attack his children. So he's used lion and a bird of prey against, and saying, you are coming against me and I'm calling your enemies to come against you. What a place to be is when you're not following God and he calls your enemies to help bring you back into place. The, the northern kingdom went into captivity under Assyria and weren't treated very nice. The southern kingdom is going to go under captivity under Nebuchadnezzar. And God is going to tell Nebuchadnezzar, because you were so overly aggressive against my people, I'm going to bring judgment on you. God used him to bring his people into captivity, but he totally abused the people. And God said, no, I'm going to, I'm going to bring judgment on you. Over and over again, God uses enemies against the people to try to drive the people to repentance. And we see the whole cycle in the book of Judges. Over and over again, the people start sinning. They turn away from God. God brings judgment. They cry out to God, and God brings a deliverer and they're restored, and then they start sinning, and God, and God brings a judgment against them. And, you know, we see this over and over again, even in our own lives. When we start disobeying God, God will bring judgment into our life. And his whole purpose of God's judgment is always to try to bring us to him. When we look at the book of Revelation and all the 21 judgments, the judgments aren't there just to say, well, I'm just so mad at the people I'm going to destroy. If he wanted to just destroy him, he'd just 
you know, say a word and they'd be destroyed. He gives them increasing attack and attack and attack with the purpose of, will you turn to me? And we read in there that some do. There are people who get turned to God during the, during the tribulation period. Most of them don't. Most of them, as, as we even see in our day and age, when trials come, they go, why is God doing this to me? And don't turn back to God. Hopefully we as Christians don't do that. Hopefully we recognize that our judgment is because of our disobedience. And that God is trying to get our attention. And there have been times when God has had to do some really hard things to get my attention, especially in the past. You know, now I'm a little quicker. I don't, I don't wait months and years like I used to. It used to be that God had to break out not even a 2 by 4 but the, you know, the, the 12 by 12 to get my attention and really hit me over the head a few times. Now, now I'm pretty close to a 2 by 4 He just has to hit me with a 2 by 4 to get my attention. But, you know, his whole purpose is when he brings these judgments, pay attention. You're headed the wrong way. And we look at somebody like Balaam. Now, if you know the story of Balaam, Balaam was a prophet of God and Balak is trying to hire him. And Balak offers him, he goes to God and he says, and God says, no, you can't go curse Israel. And he goes, tells Balak, no, I can't curse Israel. Balak comes back one more time and he says, okay, let me go pray to God. God says, no, you can't curse Israel. Comes back a third time and God says, no, you can't, you can't go curse Israel. But if they come back again, go with them. And then what we read in the very next verse, he's traveling with them. They didn't even come to him. He went with them in spite of it. And then we read how the donkey keeps walking off the road and Balaam beats the donkey and then finally he sees the angel that the donkey is trying to prevent him. What was going to happen, the, don the angel told him, if your donkey hadn't laid down in the road and you had kept coming, I was going to kill you. There comes a time when if we don't listen to God, he will just take us out. And saying, okay, I'm not going to have my name drugged through the mud any longer. You're not, you're not responding, and you're his child. He says, I'm going to change your heart. And if, you can't, if your heart won't change, then I'll just take you out, and you're not going to be ruining my reputation. Now, how patient is God? Very patient. We look at Israel. It took them hundreds and hundreds of years, if not a millennia and a half, to, before God put them into judgment. The Christian church... We are making so many bad decisions and falling apart, you know, and it's taken 2,000 years to get there, and God's finally going to say, enough is enough. The church is so impure. I'm taking those who are my remnant home and bringing judgment. We're going to see all of this going on. And God is saying, I'm calling. My, my people are like the speckled bird of prey, and I'm calling the enemy against it. And at some point, this will happen. Says my verse 10 starts, many pastors have destroyed my vineyard. So pastors, shepherds, those who are supposed to take care of his people. And he says, many of the pastors have destroyed my people. And you know, the sad thing is, and I hope I never get to this point where I destroy God's people. I don't want to be that point. I want him to take me out long before that would ever happen. But there are people out there that call themselves pastors of churches that are there for just one reason, how much money they can make. Now, they would never be in a church our size. They would never be in most of the churches. But there are churches where people make 
a lot of money because there's lots of people in them. Uh, I was reading an article, especially in South America and, and, and Africa, um, there are a lot of pastors in those two countries that are make over a million dollars a year being pastors. And I'm looking like, how? You know, those are poor countries. How much fleecing of the flock do you have to do to make that kind of money in those, in those churches? And, you know, and it's not that a pastor isn't worth their hire. You know, I mean, if you've got a big church and they can afford it and a pastor's doing a good job, they deserve to get paid. And that's not a problem. But not to the point where they destroy a church. And this is critical. He says, many pastors have destroyed my vineyard. They have trodden down my, pastor, my portion under their feet. They have made my pleasant portion a desolate waste. God is saying, these people who are supposed to be taking care of my people are destroying it. That could be just teaching bad doctrine, taking more from them than they're giving, just whatever it took to make things desolate. Uh, taking, you know, and this is the hard thing about churches sometimes. You know, how much do you pay a pastor? Now, unfortunately, in most churches, the pastor is the highest, the, the largest section of the, the outgo. And that's true even in our church. Even though I only make $250 a week, I have got the most money going to me than anything else. Uh, and I don't know that I could be pastor and make any less. I wouldn't, wouldn't be able to travel back and forth. But I would because God said this is where I'm supposed to be. But he's saying to them, you're destroying my people. You're destroying my flock. They're, they weren't teaching them to be obedient. They weren't calling out the sins that they were doing. They were just saying, okay, we'll just keep going the wrong direction. Matter of fact, most of these pastors at this particular time were probably participating in the idol worship because it was so rampant in Israel at that point in time. Because even the priests and the Levites weren't coming to the, to the tabernacle to minister to the people because the kings weren't encouraging it either. So they hardly ever came to Jerusalem. They hardly ever came to the temple. They hardly ever did the job that they were supposed to do. And if you remember the Levites and the, and the priests, the Levites' biggest job was to teach God's word to the people. And what the word was basically at that time was the Pentateuch, the law. Here is what God says. And it became very obvious that they weren't teaching God's word. When you looked at all the... the uh, idol worship going on and it's, God says for you shall have no other gods before me you have all the uh, adultery going on and they're not they're not understanding that you're not to commit adultery and all the fornication and and all the other uh, sexual sins that were going on and the theft that was going on and the lies that were going on people were not being taught to obey God and God is saying even my shepherds my pastors are destroying my people. Now, that is a sad indictment. The pastor is supposed to be taking care of the sheep, doing what it takes to build the sheep up, to encourage the sheep, to grow the sheep, and to have come along and say they're destroying what's going on is a terrible indictment. But this is where Jerusalem is at this point in time, that even those that are supposed to be taken care of are not. He says, verse 11, they have made it desolate and being desolate, it mourns unto me. The whole land is made desolate. 
because no man lays it to heart. He said the very land is mourning. It's kind of amazing when you read through the scriptures, and most people write it off to just poetry. The, the rocks will cry out, the land sings praises, the, the birds of the, the, the field, the trees of the, of the, of the field, you know, praise God. I think there is more truth in that statement than, than just poetry. What, what did God tell Cain? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the land. Paul tells us that all of creation is mourning for the day that it, of its redemption. When God says, okay, enough is enough. Adam and Eve set you in the, the path of destruction and cursing. And there will come this point of time where God says, now we're going to restore. 6,000 years of mourning from the land. Yeah. And, I, and I wonder, you know, I kind of wonder, what does the world sound like to God? Just the amount of blood that's been shed in this world. If Cain's blood cried out to God, what does all the shed blood for 6,000 years sound like in God's ears. All the innocent, quote unquote, you know, that have died, you know, to abortion, to being abused, to being all these things, what do those voices sound like in God's ears? And the earth is crying out for redemption. And I think there's more to this than, than what we just read. I don't think it's just poetic. Now, I don't know what the world sounds like. I don't know what the earth sounds like. I don't know what the trees sound like to God. But Jesus even said, you know, you know when he was coming in the triumphant in entry, stop these people from saying these, you know, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord and Hosanna, the king comes. And what was his answer? If, I'm silent, if they were silent, the rocks would cry out. I would have loved to have heard that. You know, all right, guys, be silent. We want to hear the rocks. What do the rocks say when that comes out? What would the rocks and the, and the trees and, the, and all of it say to worship God? And yet over and over in the scriptures, and I know most of it is poetic, and I'm sure it's mostly poetic, but I wonder, what does nature sound like to God? Because he's very clear that it's got a voice that he hears. And it's mourning the destruction that happened to it at the fall of man. Adam and Eve were given dominion over the world. What did they have dominion over at that time? All the animals, all the plants, all the, everything that was there, they were given dominion. And when they sinned, they gave dominion up to Satan. And Jesus had to come at the cross to take back dominion and pay the price. And he hasn't opened the title deed yet. The title deed will be opened up when he starts breaking the seals on the last day. But it's in his possession. He owns it. It's his. He bought it. He just hasn't opened the seals yet to say, this is mine again. And it never truly was, wasn't his. God still owned everything. Still, you know, even though Adam and Eve gave dominion up, he still owned it. But he bought back dominion. And here it says, all these things mourn. And it goes, and, it, and the land is desolate because no man lays it to heart. This is a pretty sad statement. 
people were not holding God's word, his standards, to heart. Now, our world is dangerously close to that right now. Now, it scares me every time I listen to what's going on in our government, other governments, and I listen to how much sin is being promoted, how much destruction of freedom is being promoted, how much going against God is being promoted. And I look at something like this and say, God, how much longer? How much longer can we go? And it's not just our country. It's everywhere across the, across the world. The world has gone crazy in sin. And the church is still having a little bit of impact. We're still holding back a little bit. But we're losing ground every time we turn around and more and more people are committing to the world's way of thinking. And the church needs to take serious this whole idea that we need to reach the young, young people. Not with the stupidity of entertainment and everything, but with the word of God so they have something to stand on. Now, entertainment might be the hook to get them in, but if that hook does not attach to God's word to give them something to stand on, it's not worth anything. And I've listened to a lot of pastors talk about how, well, we're going to do this because we want the large young people crowd, so we're going we're gonna to play this loud music. I'm going, that's fine, but what is your message to the people? Well, you know, we just can't get, you know, we've got to get them into church before we can start giving them the message. Yeah, but are you giving them the message? And unfortunately, so many of them aren't. And they're just using the world's way to draw a crowd. And that doesn't matter. The kids know the difference. The young people know the difference. They don't want to see a bunch of baloney. They want to have something they can live by. And this is what they're looking for. Is there something here that I can live for? Or even, let's take it even stronger, is there something here that I can die for? The world doesn't give people very much to die for. Let's just entertain you to death. It's going to, it's going to lead to your death, but you may not want it, we're, you know, but we're going to entertain you to death. And how much of our world is based upon being entertained to death? Mindless, empty TV sitcoms, mindless, empty TV movies, Mindless, empty, violent movies on television and books to read and music to listen to. Everything is just mindless and leading to destruction. And people are looking for something that is something that you is be worth dying for. You know, as far as I'm concerned, God is worth dying for. Now I want to live as long as he wants me to live, but at the same token, I'm ready to die for him. If he says it's time to die, I'm ready to die for him because he is worth dying for because of his love for us. And this is what he's saying. The desolate pastures cry out. Cry out to me. He says the spoilers are come upon all the high places through the wilderness for the sword of the Lord shall devour the one end of the land even to the other end of the land. No flesh shall have peace. When God moves, everything is devoured. And this is something that's kind of scary when we look at in the past history, when God has put in changes in nations, when the southern kingdom was taken, Assyria swept through the land, killing people, destroying cities. Nebuchadnezzar came sweeping through the land, killing people, destroying cities. 
the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire, it doesn't matter which empire you look at, they come sweeping across, killing not just the righteous, but the unrighteous as well. And probably more of the unrighteous than the righteous. Of course, by that time, there's not that many righteous anyway. Otherwise, there wouldn't be the judgment falling. There's coming a time when the enemy is going to move. I look at our country, and I, and I don't recognize our country. It's not the country I grew up in. And it's fast becoming something I don't recognize at all. Why? The sword is coming to devour. This country started on Christian principles, following godly procedures. And now we read such things like, well, it, it wasn't a Christian nation, never has been. It was all a bunch of rich, pe rich, rich white people who are getting privileges and everything. The Constitution isn't worth anything. And I've read this, these articles. Why should we even care about the Constitution? These are what the smart so-called people are saying, that the Constitution is worthless. The Constitution is the only reason this country hasn't totally fallen apart yet. And if they do successfully get rid of it, this country is gone, as we know it, as a righteous country where people can have rights that God in endorses. And it's fast becoming this. I'm, I'm wondering if we'll even ever get to another major election without the destruction of our country. And it's a scary thing to be looking at. I loved America. I loved growing up in America. I would not want to be anything but an American with the peace and the freedoms we've had. But they're quickly coming to an end. And we have one of the most free countries in the world. If ours fall, the rest of them will fall in a heartbeat because ours has a strong constitution that has kept it in place, a strong godly background that has kept it in place. If we fall, the rest of them will fall. There was people, in a, people are going, well, this country has been trying to export democracy forever. Well, our founding father said that democracy only works, or republic in our case, only works with a godly people following God's rules. Over and over, our founding father said that. Why doesn't it not work in most of the other countries? They do not have the foundation to make a democracy work. And once we fall, the rest of the world falls, but that also takes us to the end days. It's an exciting time. It's a kind of a, you know, you look at it and go, God, what is happening to our world? Read the book of Revelation and, and the end of Daniel, and you know exactly what's happening to the world. And it's both very sad to see the end and demise and to be here at the end of demise. But it's also very exciting to say, God, we're at the end. We're going to be called home soon. We as Christians, the remnant, are going to be called home soon. And then all hell breaks loose on this world as God brings judgment on it. And Satan starts having a more free hand than he's ever had in, his, in the past. So it's an exciting time and yet a depressing time to live because of what's going on. And I look at it sometimes, I'm going, God, I'm so depressed, but yes, God, I'm excited. You're going you're to take us home soon. You know, it's an exciting time. to. It's probably one of the best times. The only other time that might have been better is to actually have walked with Jesus on this land, on this world. And the other, only other time would have been to walk with Adam and Eve and actually walk with God every evening. That would have been wonderful. And we'll get that in the future. We'll get to walk with God every day. 
after all of this is done, when the new, new heaven and new earth are formed, we'll get to walk with him every day. What a great blessing that will be. But there's a lot of bad that's coming before that. A lot of hardship that's coming on this world. And it says the sword, and it says no flesh shall have peace. This is one of the interesting things. When we look at the tribulation period, when the Antichrist comes to power, there's not going to be nations fighting nations. There's not going to be... He is supposed to be bringing in the utopia. Everybody's going to be really happy. You know, we've got one government, one world going to start everything. The, the only time they've had this in the past was at creation and during the time of Nimrod. All the world was under one leader who brutalized the people. Satan will have all the power, all the control, and he will brutalize the people. There will not be peace during that time. He will have full control of what you can buy, what you can sell, where you can go, what you can do, uh, everything. And people are going to think, you know, this is so good as they enter into it and find out it was all a bunch of lies. We've seen this over and over in our history when dictators come to power. They make all these promises. When we look at Hitler coming to power for the Third Reich, what was his promise? I'll just give you a loaf of bread every day. That was his big promise to get elected. 80% of the voters voted him into office because he promised them food. They just didn't know what was hidden in the other hand as he took full control of the world for that food he gave. What do we see in our world today? Governments are starting to hand out all these free gifts. But those free gifts always come with a hook that snares people. All these benefits that people get have a hook that comes in and says, now you will do things our way. And we need to be very careful about what we accept from the government because it's nothing but bringing slavery to the people and putting them under the control of the government, which is Satan's long-term goal. Bring the people all under his control. No other options. No peace for anybody. That's his end goal. And it says, They have sown wheat, but they will reap thorns. They have put themselves to pain, or really worked themselves to, worked themselves to death, basically, but they'll have no profit. They shall be ashamed of your revenues because of the fierce anger of the Lord. He goes, people are still going to be doing things, but they're not going to get the benefits. They're going to sow good seed. They're going to sow wheat and not reap a harvest. He says, they're going to work themselves. And this literally, when it says they put themselves to pain, literally means they work themselves virtually to death and get no profit because... Every, Satan is in control. It's devastated. It's desolate. And it says, and all of this is because the Lord has moved against them. And we think about this. If you remember when we studied about the ten plagues in Egypt, what ended up happening? Each one of those plagues attacked one or more of the Egyptian gods, but they also attacked the economy of the Egyptians. When God got done bringing the ten plagues, he had defeated all of their gods. said, none of your gods are strong enough to stop me. But he had also wiped out all the fish, wiped out all the produce, wiped out all the animals, wiped out 
everything there was to be wiped out economically, the, the Egyptians were left desolate because of their rejection to honor God. And then finally lost the firstborn, the strength of each family, the firstborn of every family was killed. And so God says, I'm going to bring my anger. There's coming a time when God's anger will come in. I think we're starting to see the fingers of God's anger coming in with all the storms we're having and the famines that we're having and, and the governments that are coming to power. We're starting to see the finger of God's anger. And it's going to get worse when he says, okay, I have had enough. You have gone over the tipping point. Where that tipping point is, I don't know. Can we still repent? Yes, the world can still repent and turn to God and we can have a great revival. I'm not sure we're going to see one, but we could still have a great revival. I would love to see a great revival. We're praying for revival. Our church is praying for revival. But it's up to God whether we're going to get a revival. Has the world gone to the tipping point and there's no return? If you've ever spun a, a top, you know, and it spins and all of a sudden it starts wobbling and wobbling and wobbling, and all of a sudden it gets to that point when that wobble goes so far there is no return. You know, you watch it for a long time and it goes way over and it comes back. It goes way over and comes back. And then one time it just goes way over and keeps going over. Now it may still spin around a little bit, but it doesn't return back. There will be a point when this world goes beyond the tipping point. I don't know how far away that is. I'm not a prophet. I'm not going to... God says no man knows the time. All I know is I look at the seasons and I'm watching that top spinning and starting to wobble. Are we going to recover or are we going to crash? I don't know. It seems to be getting worse. But you know, and I've said this many times, in each time that God has come back with revival, if you had read their news of their day, they were going, there's no way we can get back from this. You know, God has got to destroy us because of how bad we are. God is sovereign. He can redeem anything. And Will he redeem this world where we're at now? I have no idea. Can he? Absolutely. If this world will repent, God will step in and do something great. You know, and my prayer is, God, revival. My hope is, God, take me home. <laughs> you know, if he brings revival, great. It means my grandkids and my great-grandkids can, can live in a godly world. If not... I worry about them. I, I want them to know God so that they're not having to go through the hardships and the trials that are coming this way. And this is so important. Uh, verse 14. Thus saith the Lord, against all my, all my evil neighbors that touch the inheritance which I have caused my people Israel to inherit, behold, I will pluck them out of their land and pluck, them, pluck out the house of Judah from among them. And it shall come to pass after I have plucked them out that I will return and, I, and have compassion on them and will bring them again, every man to his heritage and every man to his land. And it shall come to pass if they will diligently learn of the ways of my people to swear by, by my name, the Lord lives as they taught my people to swear by Baal, then shall they be built in the midst of my people. But if they will not obey... I will utterly pluck up and destroy that nation, says the Lord. This has happened many times for God. He sent Israel into captivity, again, you know, during the times of the Babylonians, and he brought them back. 
He sent them into captivity in the times of the Roman Empire, and he brought them back in 48. And God says, I will take my people back out of the nations they are scattered in. I will take out the people that have their territory and take them out. There will be one other big event that comes up. During the tribulation period when the Antichrist in the, at the halfway mark declares that he is God and Israel leaves Jerusalem and hides in the wilderness to be protected by God, God says, I'm going to bring you back. And he will bring them back during the millennial kingdom and restore to them their inheritance. Really for the first time get it restored the way it's always been. Because it says all through the, the scriptures that Zephaniah says that the people will see Jesus returning and saying, where did you get those scars? And he goes, I get, got them in the house of a friend. You know, and then they recognize the Messiah. And he gives them what they have been longing for, the rule of the world from Jerusalem. They will be restored to Jerusalem completely and they will worship God during that period of time, at least initially. A thousand years later, who's worshiping God will be determined by Satan being released a thousand years later to raise one more attack against God. And this one is so hard to believe. A thousand years of utopia. You have all the food you want, you have no war, you have no, no real problems. People are living long, long lives again. People don't appear to be getting sick during that period of time. And yet, they will reject God by a very large percentage. It's the, it's the battle for the last lie of Satan. If people just had a good life and nothing, there were no problems, then they would, everything would be good. And God is going to prove the last lie to be a lie. He's going to give them a thousand years of almost perfect, yes, there's sin nature and all of that, but he rules with an iron rod. There's no wars. There's no, no huge problems going on. And justice is reigning. When people do disobey, they will be, they will be punished. And the, the people will still rebel against God. Even though they say, well, it's only all these bad things. You know, it's the way I was raised. That's why all these bad things. It's the way they were raised. That's why they're bad. And God's going to say, fine. A thousand years of good. And you're still going to choose evil. You're still going to choose the wrong way. And God says, I'm going to bring my people out. And I will have compassion on them. God has been so patient with Israel. Israel is being brought back as a nation. They're being delivered by God from their enemies. They're growing. They're the number one force in their region. They give water to the whole region. They give energy to the whole region. They give food to the whole region. And yet they are accused of being this despotic nation that doesn't care for anybody but themselves. And yet they are blessing the entire Middle East with water and oil and minerals and knowledge and, and activities and peace. And yet they're attacked over and over again for being terrible. And God says, I will protect my people. I will honor them. And they will be protected. And I will pluck out the enemy from among them. Now he hasn't plucked out the enemy from among them yet. And he won't do it until the millennial kingdom, by the way things are looking, because the Antichrist is going to come. 
He's going to somehow get a temple built for them on probably the Temple Mount. I believe personally, some people believe that the dome of the rock will be destroyed. I just believe they'll split the, split the, the Temple Mount and build, build the temple on one side and they'll just put a big wall in front of it. And why do I believe that? Is because we're told in the Old Testament that God said, measure the temple, but do not measure the court of the Gentiles because it has been given to the Gentiles. So I believe they're just going to build a temple and say, okay, this other half that normally would have been ours belongs to the Muslims. And they'll be just happy to have their, their temple. They can start offering sacrifices. They can start worshiping God the way they think he's supposed to be worshiped. And then the Antichrist will come to power and say, at one point, stand in the temple and say, I am God. And they're going to realize that they've been lied to. And then everything really goes crazy the last three and a half years of the, of the tribulation period. All of this comes down because God says, I will pluck out my people. I will restore my people. I will take out their enemies. What a beautiful thing that God does. He loves his people. He loves Israel even though they are not following on obeying him. Even to this day, they are not following on Obeim, and yet he says, I love my people. I am going to bless them because I made a promise 4,500 years ago to Abraham. And I'm going to still bless these people who don't love me. How much more love does God have for us who he has purchased through the blood of Christ that have made a decision to follow him? He has such great love for us that we need to really understand that he has a love for us that is just unfathomable. He has a love for us that we take for granted more often than not. And I know that I fall into that category. I take for granted his love and his grace more often than I should. And I even know better. And I still do it. And we need to be very careful with that because God loves us so much that he has bought us. He has redeemed us. He has clothed us in his righteousness and said, you are my dearly beloved children. And not only that, the father says, you are my children. Jesus says, you're my bride. You are my dearly beloved bride. That takes it even to another level. When you're married, your spouse becomes the person that you're really supposed to pay attention to and, and honor and love and cherish. Jesus loves us and cherishes us to a degree that we can't even hardly imagine. And God says, I am going to bring my people out. We are very close to facing the time of the rapture when the church will be taken out. God says, I'm going to pluck my people out and things are going to happen. Things are going to happen when the church is no longer in place, slowing down the sin of this world, how fast will the sin multiply? Now, I look at it around and I mean, go, we're not doing the greatest job right now of keeping sin in check, but how bad would it be if we weren't there saying, no, this is wrong? No, we're challenges. We're going to take this to the Supreme Court. We're going to, we're going to vote for people who aren't going to just bow to the sin nature. We need to be able to take and do the best we can. Ultimately, we'll lose. Ultimately, we're going to lose because the evil will win out in the long run, at least until the millennial kingdom and then the 
new heaven and new earth, but for the short term, evil is going to win or appear to win. And then Jesus comes, restores everything for a thousand years, and even then Satan is able to raise up an army against God. And then God says, enough is enough, I'm going to destroy everything. And I'm going to start all new. And my gloriously redeemed, restored people will inhabit this world. Perfect people inhabiting a perfect world. And I, I wonder sometimes, what will a perfect world look like? You know, what would a perfect world be like? Our world is so flawed that I don't know what a perfect world will look like. And yet he says, I am going to put you in a perfect world, a perfect environment where we won't even need sunlight because God will be the light. No, no shadows because light's coming from every place, no darkness, no night, no, no evil, but a perfect world that God is in charge of. I can't, my, I've already told you, I have no imagination hardly at all, so I can't even imagine what that would be like. I guess some people have great imaginations. I'm not one of them. That's why I'm not an artist. <laughs> but God has got a great plan for us, and he's going to make it all happen. Lord, we thank you for how much you love us. Lord, we thank you that you are going to protect your people. Lord, even when the world turns completely against you, you have a plan. When your people appear to turn against you, you still have a plan, and you will make your plan come to fulfillment. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friend, do you know where you'll go after you die? Without the gift of Jesus, it will be an eternity in hell without God. Good works will not get you there. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. To spend eternity with God, we must recognize that we are sinners in need of Christ. For all of sin and come short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. To be assured eternal life, we simply talk to God, admit you are a sinner, and ask him for his free gift. You must mean the words to, get the, to be answered. Jesus is waiting to hear your request. If you have asked him for eternal life, he has come into you and he will change you. Start reading the book of Ephesians and see what God says about your new life. After you understand the book of Ephesians, you can start reading the Gospel of John. Next, find a good Bible teaching church. Tell the pastor about your decision for God and be taught. If you contact us, we will send you a new believer booklet free of charge. Congratulations and grow in Christ. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by snail mail at P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431. We are happy to help with your new life in Christ or even answering Bible questions. Again, congratulations on your decision for Christ.